The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. All right, well, there is something that, that every single one of us as human beings needs, and yet uh, n- no one gets enough of. Um, some of us are acutely aware of our need of it, and others are completely oblivious, and yet the need is completely the same. From a newborn baby right, to a 100-year-old in hospice. And, and the need that I'm talking about this morning is comfort. Uh, not comfort like we idolize comfort in, in our day and age, okay? I'm not talking about your need for a luxury SUV or a new sofa in your theater room or, you know, all the money that you can imagine to take that trip of, of leisure and vacation that you want. Um, I'm talking about a deeper comfort, uh, a comfort in your soul. Uh, the, the kind of comfort, to, to make this more tangible, that a, a newborn baby might seek when frightened. Uh, the, the kind of comfort that, that a seven-year-old m- might long for um, in, in, a, in your musty, unfinished basement in the midst of a tornado warning. The kind of comfort a teenager on the precipice of adulthood might need, even if they'd never admit it, <laughs> when faced with major life decisions that seem paralyzingly overwhelming. Or, or adults, um, when it feels like your life or your career or your marriage or your family or your identity are coming apart. And let's take off our bulletproof vests that we put over our emotional state this morning, be honest long enough to, to acknowledge that we all need comfort. When the illness is chronic, when death comes knocking, when we lose someone we love, tragedy, affliction, loneliness, When we look around the world and we have eyes to see evil, when we see injustice, when we see corruption, racism, when we see fraud, when we see oppression, sex trafficking, horrible statistics, the worldwide statistics like 125,000 abortions per day in our world. When the culture seems to be headed on a fast and furious beeline away from anything that seems to resemble Christianity and and Christian values. When when moral anarchy is the way of the day. When the tide and tyranny of culture seems like it might crush Christianity. Or when persecution is real and seemingly unavoidable and unovercomable. What we long for in our souls is comfort. The, the kind of comfort that, that holds us in, in loving arms, right, and says, shh, everything's going to be all right. <laughs> well, believe it or not, that's what the book of Nahum is all about. And in fact, Nahum, what his name means is comfort. See, the Old Testament minor prophet book of Nahum begins on page 782. You can turn there. Nahum is designed to be a comfort to God's people. Now, if you've read Nahum, you you might be thinking at this moment, are we reading the same book of the Bible here? N-A-H-U-M, is that how we're spelling? You know, you're you're wondering if it's the same thing. Nahum is bloody. Nahum, God is wrathful in it. In fact, for some of you, you might even read Nahum and say, this is exactly um, the part of God that I really don't like. You you know, this is the Old Testament God that, that, that really makes me uncomfortable. 
Um, but I want you to see this morning, what I want you to see this morning is that Nahum isn't meant to scare you. Um, it isn't meant to make you uncomfortable. Not if you belong to God. If you belong to God, it's meant to, to comfort you. Take heart, Nahum is saying. Here's Nahum's message if I were to summarize it in three points. Take heart. The Lord is your God. The Lord is. Point number two, take heart. The Lord is powerful. And point number three, take heart. The Lord is good. That's what we're going to see. Again, if you belong to God, this book of the Bible is designed to bring comfort to you like no other. It's designed to bring satisfying comfort into the deepest recesses of your soul. Look at Nahum 1, verse 7 with me. It says, the, the Lord is good. Let's say that out loud together this morning. The Lord is good. Do you believe that? Like in the deepest pockets of your soul, do you believe that he is good? No matter what comes your way, do you believe he is good? He's a stronghold in the day of trouble, the next line says. Some of you this morning are in a day of trouble, and it might not be a day, it might be a year, it might be longer, but you're there. And what I want you to hear this morning is that the Lord is a stronghold for you. A mighty fortress, a safe place. And he knows those who take refuge in him. He knows you, Christian. He knows everything about you. The number of hairs on your head, the number of pennies in your pocket. He knows your needs. He knows your struggles. He knows your doubts and your fears. He knows those who take refuge in him. And if that's you this morning, there is a message of comfort here for you. Now, here's the flip side of that, okay? If you aren't one who takes refuge in God, um, if you're not one of his people, the, the very next verse here in Nahum ought to get your attention real quick. It says, verse 8, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Very plainly, if you don't belong to God, you are at odds with God. We all are until we trust in Jesus Right, James 4 in the New Testament tells us that if we are a friend of the world, we are an enemy of God. If our allegiances lie out there rather than, than here, we are at odds with him. And therefore, verse 8 applies, not verse 7. And so if you haven't trusted in Jesus, Nahum won't comfort you. It will terrify you. And so the application for you this morning, as you hear the, about the, the wrath of God and the, the bloodshed here in, in Nahum, is for that terror to expose your need for comfort too. And to run to Jesus. To trust in Jesus. Take refuge in Jesus. He's not going to cast you out. When we repent of our sin and turn to him, he does not stand arms crossed saying, I'm sorry, there's no more room at the inn. No, instead, he says, he meets you there, open arms, and he says, come on in. It's safe here. Now, in, in order for us to understand how it is that Nahum is a word of comfort to those who take refuge in the Lord, we've we got to understand some context, okay? Or to put it in a, a, a phrase that one of my seminary professors used to say, context is king. It's king. 
context is. It helps us to understand what's going on. And the first thing we need to acknowledge that is going on is that Nahum is an oracle concerning Nineveh. We read that in chapter 1, verse 1. So unlike most of the other minor prophets, with the exception of Obadiah, uh, Nahum is a prophecy directed primarily at the enemies of God's people, not at God's people themselves. Okay, so you read through the minor prophets, God's got a lot to say about his idolatrous people themselves, right? Not in Nahum, though. This is primarily a prophecy towards his enemies, the people of Nineveh in particular. To be more precise, it's written as a judgment oracle against the Assyrians, Remember, Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria, the powerhouse city in the Assyrian Empire. Now, I'll just give you a little bit of historical timeline here to place Nahum in the biblical storyline. In 931 B.C., maybe you'll remember we've been talking about this week after week, you know, the kingdom divided. And you get Israel, the kingdom of Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Not too long after that, Assyria begins to rise in power and dominance in that region. Somewhere around 782 to 753, Jonah is sent to, by, by God to prophesy in Nineveh. The, the, Nineveh the, the Ninevites repent, surprisingly, though it would appear not to have been true repentance as we know it, or at the very least, within a few short decades, they had repented of their repentance and resumed growing in, uh, into this brutal military powerhouse. And what they did was they established their empire, the Assyrians did, by bloodshed, massacres, cruelty, torture, destruction, plundering, and exile. In fact, they, when they would conquer a city, what they were famous for was completely depopulating it and repopulating it with people from another place. That's what the Assyrians were famous for. When well, about 734, during the reign of King Ahaz in Judah... Judah becomes a vassal state of Assyria. So Ahaz, King Ahaz of Judah, he struck a deal with this burgeoning powerhouse. You can read about it in 2 Kings 16. This required Judah to pay hefty tribute to the Assyrians and, and come under their control, in a sense. In 722, famous date, the Assyrians attacked the northern kingdom of Israel and, and win. They, they conquer them, they carry them off into exile. That's 2 Kings 17. 701 B.C., Judah revolts. Remember the southern kingdom. They revolt now against the Assyrians under King Hezekiah's leadership. But they don't completely break free. That's 2 Kings 18. And then in about 687 B.C., Hezekiah dies. He's replaced by his son Manasseh, who certainly did not start off as a good king. Manasseh, we're told at the beginning of his reign, he paid no attention to the Lord. He's like, the Lord who? Don't, don't even, never heard of him. Don't even need him, right? At some point in there, Second Chronicles 33 records that the Assyrians came and captured King Manasseh, carried him off into exile, but later he repented. And he was restored in Jerusalem. He then leads a season of repentance and reform in Judah until he dies. <laughs> There's a couple of years of his son, King Amon, reigning in there. He was not a good king. Judah's still this vassal state. And then in 640, Josiah begins to reign in Judah, and he introduces a, a long season of reform in the 12th year of his reign, around 628 B.C. And so it's within this time period here, this historical time period, that Nahum ministers in Judah, a vassal state for the mighty and powerful Assyrian Empire. There's two keys in Nahum that help us place him on this timeline. 
Chapter 3, verse 8 references the fall of Thebes, a great and powerful city in southern Egypt, which history tells us fell to the Assyrians in about 664 B.C. That's a past tense event in Nahum, so we know he ministered after 664 B.C. We also know from history that the Assyrian Empire fell to the Babylonians and the Medes in 612 B.C. Lastly, we know from Nahum chapter 1, verse 12, that he ministered while the Assyrians were still at full strength, at the height of their power, all of which likely places Nahum somewhere around 660 to 630 B.C. And you say, why is that important? <laughs> was that just a fun exercise of history? Here's why it matters. This was a time of reform in Judah. God's people, imperfectly, but with attempt, are pursuing faithfulness. And yet there's this massive, looming threat of the Assyrians. And God's word comes through Nahum to say to God's people, shh, everything's going to be all right. It's a word of comfort to God's people. Because it's his word pronouncing, I will deal with the Assyrians. I am your stronghold and your day of trouble. Take heart. And throughout the three chapters in Nahum, we gain three words of comfort that are just, they're just as applicable today and comforting to us today as they were to God's people back then. Listen to them. The first is this. Take heart. The Lord is your God. The Lord is. See, the first word of comfort that comes to God's people through the prophet Nahum is rooted in the character of God. In other words, who God is is a comfort to God's people. What he's like is to be a comfort to us. Who is he? What's he like? Well, look at, look at verse 2. This isn't exhaustive, but this is important. Look at, look at verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Now, there's five things in these short six lines that we're told about who God is. Number one, he's jealous. And not in the sinful way that we think about jealousy, you know, like I'm jealous of someone's sweet vacation they had already this summer. No, he's jealous for his honor, um, which isn't sinful. It isn't selfish or the, the character trait of, a, of an egomaniac because he is the supremely good and perfect being in the universe. And the truth that he is a jealous God, jealous for his honor, jealous, therefore, for our worship, is a comfort for us because it means he labors for us. God will not ultimately be disgraced or mocked. Secondly, he's avenging. Three times in verse 2 we're told that he's an avenging God. Five times, actually, if you count the references to him being wrathful. Now, that might not immediately seem comforting to you, but let me tell you why it is. The Lord, our God, is holy. He's holy even in his anger. When we think of anger, we, we typically think of outbursts, like our kind of anger, you know, um, usually unrighteous anger. But because God is holy, his anger is holy. 
He possesses righteous anger, in particular towards sin, towards the enemies of his peoples, and he avenges evil. He's not a vengeful God whose anger is arbitrary. He's holy in his anger, holy in his avenging. Number three, he's slow to anger. So even in his righteous anger, he's slow to it. He's patient, giving full opportunity for repentance. But don't forget, he is avenging. So we must never presume upon him. His long-suffering and patient nature should never be understood as indifference. Nahum breaks through any deadening indifference in us and reminds us that though he is slow to anger, he is still avenging. Number four, he's great in power. We're going to focus quite a bit more on that here in a little bit. And number five, he's just. He will by no means clear the guilty. You ever feel like the the wicked prosper in this world? (laughs) David did. He wrote psalms about it. It often feels in this world that the wicked prosper while the godly suffer. You, You may especially feel that way if you've ever been abused in some way. Taken advantage of. Take it out of the personal realm and put it in the broader realm. Those who commit acts of of injustice, those who propagate evil and, and hatred in the world, God's word reminds us here, no one is getting away with it. Vengeance is the Lord's. He will repay, Paul tells us at the end of at the end of Romans 12. And therefore, we do not have to be overcome by evil but rather are to strive to overcome evil with good, trusting it all in the end to the Lord who will by no means clear the guilty. God's people in Nahum's day needed to hear that because of the Assyrians. Who do you need to hear it because of? Church, take heart. The Lord is your God. He is a jealous God, an avenging God, slow to anger, great in power, and he's just. Or to sum it all up, he's Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. He's Yahweh, the great I am, the covenant-keeping God from of old who is faithful to his people even when it seems like the world is falling apart and his people are doomed. Do you know the Lord like this? When the day of trouble comes, do you take comfort in who your God is? You should and you can. The first word of comfort in the book of Nahum, take heart, the Lord is your God. The second word of comfort, take heart, the Lord is powerful. He's powerful. And and this is important because character doesn't always translate into action, does it? I mean, I've I've known some super nice guys, salt-of-the-earth kind of guys with impeccable character who'd get their bottoms kicked in a fight, you know? Um, But the Lord is not like that. He's he's not like that. He's he's not like the super nice kid who, who can't win a fight. He's holy and powerful. He doesn't just have an impeccable character. He has impeccable power. Look at Nahum 1, verse 
4. It says, he rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Listen to this language. Hills and mountains are are symbols of, of permanence, aren't they? But they can't stand before him. The earth melts. Rocks are are shattered before him. Rocks are like one of the the hardest things that we find in nature. They're they're, they're shattered before him. A couple weeks ago, I was with my family out on the Niobrara in northwest uh, Nebraska. We're we're out in the river. If you've ever been in that river or any other river, you know there's often rocks in the bottom of it, right? And I thought I'd do this dad joke thing, right, where I grabbed a big rock in one hand and a handful of little rocks in the other one, but I kept that hand under the water, and I said, hey, Vivian, my, my eight-year-old, hey, Vivian, watch this. And I was like, I'm going to crush this rock. And I put it under the water where she can't see it, dropped that one, switched them over, and brought it up and crumbled them out. And she goes, Dad. Right? Which, which, which is funny, you know, because I can't convince anyone anymore over five years old that I can crush rocks. Why not? Because I'm not that powerful. But God is. God can shatter rocks. He's powerful. He's not just powerful to shatter rocks in a river with kids. He's powerful in his indignation against oppression. He's powerful in his anger against injustice and and evil in this world. He will by no means clear the guilty. No, his wrath is poured out like a fire. That is some heavy imagery. And we might say, geez, God, I mean, chill out a little bit. But If that's your reaction, listen to this description of the Assyrians in in their day. This is actually an Assyrian king, Ashurbanipal. His his words himself boastfully writing down how he dealt with some who were plotting to destroy him. He says, as for those common men who had spoken derogatory things against my god Asher and had plotted against me, the prince who reveres him, I tore out their tongues and abased them. As a posthumous offering, I smashed the rest of the people alive by the very figures of protective deities between which they had smashed Shanasharib, my grandfather. Their cut-up flesh I fed to the dogs, swine, jackals, birds, vultures to the birds of the sky, and the fishes of the deep pools. This was the one who was threatening God's people. Remember, they're a vassal state of the Assyrians. This is who had rule and authority over them, who afflicted them in in various ways. And so it's a word of comfort to hear God speak this way against their powerful enemies. It's a word of comfort for them to hear, verse 12, Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength in many, they will be cut down and pass away. And then he says to Judah, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off of you, Judah, and burst your bonds apart. Focusing back to the Assyrians, the Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave 
for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Celebrate, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Now, that brings us into chapter 2, where this power of the Lord that we're talking about is put on complete display. And we get this play-by-play of God coming and destroying Nineveh. In, in detail, we followed the destruction. Like, we can see it. We can hear it. This is war poetry. In short, staccato verses, Nahum brings us into what, what he can see, the full and complete and final destruction of Nineveh. And the prophecy is so vivid, so specific and precise, it feels as if we are there. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. It says, the scatterer has come up against you. Who's the scatterer? But the Lord himself. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. Now he talks about this army that he's going to send against the Ninevites. The shield of his mighty men is, is red, stained from the blood of battle, victorious battle. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. These are men who know how to fight. The chariots come with flashing metal. On the day that he musters them, the cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Talking about the people and the soldiers, the defenders fleeing. Halt, halt, they cry to them, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate. Desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins and all faces grow pale. Where's the lion's den? That's a reference to the king. Where is he? The feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and the lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lioness. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Woe to the bloody city. All full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, host of slains. 
heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. <laughs> Scholars Fewer and Yates see a, a chiastic structure. That's a literary device in Nahum 2 and 3. It looks like this. I put that up on the screen. And what a chiastic structure does is draw attention through parallelism to the middle of the chiasm, which they identify as chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, highlighting the central theme of the book, Nineveh is as good as dead. <laughs> I mentioned this already, but in chapter 3, verse 8, Nahum asked provokingly of Nineveh, are you better than Thebes? that sat by the Nile with water all around her, her rampart at sea and water her wall. You think you're better than Thebes? Thebes was a massively powerful city in Egypt. Ironically, it was attacked and conquered by the Assyrians in 663 B.C. It was a city that seemed impenetrable. But Nahum is saying, just like Thebes was conquered, so too you will be. Assyria. In fact, Nahum actually taunts the Assyrians. There's like a, a little bit of like sarcastic taunt that's in Nahum as well. Look at verse 12. He says in chapter 3, all your fortresses are like fig trees with the first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. You think you're tough, he says? You're not. A little shake from the Lord. It's a little shake and your fortresses will fall. To, to the Lord, defeating Nineveh, it's like taking candy from a baby. And in 612 BC, Nahum's prophecy is fulfilled. Nineveh did fall. It fell hard to the Babylonians and the Medes. Listen to how one writer speaks of this. He says, when, when the site of ancient Nineveh was finally discovered and excavated in the 19th century, Archaeologists found no stores of silver and gold objects as they were hoping they would. <laughs> it was absolutely empty. Everything was taken, stripped bare. After pillaging the city, the invaders burned and razed it to the ground. Indeed, these first archaeologists found unusually deep strata of ashes. When Nineveh fell, it fell hard. Nineveh passed with unusual speed from the very center of history to being entirely forgotten. Its location became lost to human memory and became a matter for speculation for over 2,000 years. People knew the name Nineveh from the Bible and from the Babylonian records, but they could not figure out where it was located. It wasn't until 1842 that archaeologists rediscovered it. Here's the point for God's people and for you and me. God is powerful enough to conquer any enemy and therefore, he is powerful enough to save anyone who seeks refuge in him. Do you believe that today? Do you believe it to be true for you in your day of trouble? Is it a comfort? Friends, this is our hope. It's, it's in God. 
Right? It's, it's not in our own strength to, to defeat the powers of darkness and evil in the world. Our hope is, is not in our ability to avenge all evildoers and wrongdoers everywhere for all time. Our hope isn't in ourselves, our abilities, our anything. It's in him. Take heart. The Lord is powerful. 17th century Anglican pastor William Grinnell put it this way, saying the strength of the general and other hosts lies in his troops. That's how we tend to think. It's like, well, it's up to us. God wants us to, you know, do it all. The strength of the general and other hosts lies in his troops, but in the army of saints, the strength of every saint, ye, of the whole host of saints, lies in the Lord of hosts. Our strength is in him. Our hope is in him. And he is powerful. The Lord is. Go back to chapter 1, verse 7. Remember, this is everyone's favorite verse in, in name. It talks about him being our stronghold in the day of trouble. Him knowing those who take refuge in him. But look at the first line there again. We looked at this once. He's good. He's good. That's the third word of comfort here in Ham. Take heart. The Lord is good. He is good. And the fact that he's pictured here in Nahum as the divine warrior is a part of the good news. When the day of trouble comes in your life or, or stays, when tragedy or, or affliction or loneliness won't lift, when evil is ramping up all around you, when persecution hits, it is good news. It is a comfort to hear and know you have a divine warrior on your side. Your trials will not last forever. You and I have been united together with Christ as believers, as those who have trusted in Jesus. Not just in his death, but in his resurrection. This is why Jesus says in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He asks. What that means is your day of trouble will not last forever you will outlast it. If not in this life, certainly in the next. Though you die, yet you shall live forever with him. Yes, in this world you're going to have tribulation. Yes, you're going to have trouble and affliction. The Bible tells us to expect it. Listen, judging by the way of things, we're trending increasingly in that direction. It seems intense, it seems scary and overwhelming, like everything might be falling apart. The evil seems impenetrable, the trends maybe seem to you unstoppable, but take heart, Jesus says. I've overcome the world. I am the divine warrior, and I'm good. Oh, taste and see, friends. The Lord is good. Blessed is the man takes refuge in him. This is part of the gospel. I mean, if Jesus just, if he just forgives us from our sins, 
but, but doesn't execute justice and judgment equitably. I mean, that's all right news. That's pretty good news. I mean, we would call that good news. But forgiveness and new life and the death of everything that causes pain and death, that, my friends, is amazingly good news. He's good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, and he fights for them. He fights for you. And he will one day finally and fully fight and win against all sickness, all disease, all death, all loneliness, all tragedy, all evil, everywhere. It's going to be dealt with. For him, it's going to be like taking candy from a baby. I know it seems impossible, but it's not. He is able. He will one day hold you in his perfect arms like he does spiritually now and say, shh, everything's going to be all right. Church, take heart. The Lord is your God. Take heart. The Lord is powerful. Take heart. The Lord is good. Let's pray. Father, one of our core values around here is that we are gospel-centered. And we mean that in the broad and sweeping ways that your word means that. Thank you for the good news that you are powerful enough to conquer any and all enemies and therefore powerful enough to save all those who take refuge in you. Thank you for Jesus who conquered Satan, sin, and death. Our hope is in him. And we pray in his powerful and good name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.